In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant that by the same Holy Spirit they may be truly wise, and ever rejoice in your consolations, through Christ our Lord. Amen. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. John. A man came, sent by God. His name was John. He came as a witness, as a witness to speak for the light, so that everyone might believe through him. He was not the light, only a witness to speak for the light. This is how John appeared as a witness. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He not only declared, but he declared quite openly, I am not the Christ. Well then, they asked, Are you Elijah? I am not, he said. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We must take back an answer to those who sent us. What have you to say about yourself? So John said, I am, as Isaiah prophesied, a voice that cries in the wilderness, make a straight way for the Lord. Now these men had been sent by the Pharisees, and they put this further question to him. Why are you baptizing if you are not the Christ and not Elijah and not the prophet? John replied, I baptize with water, but there stands among you, unknown to you, the one who is coming after me, and I am not fit to undo his sandal strap. This happened at Bethany, on the far side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. In this gospel passage for the third Sunday of Advent, we're looking at a familiar figure in a new way. Last week, the second Sunday of Advent, we were introduced to the person of John the Baptist through the eyes of Mark the Evangelist. But this week, we hear what the Gospel of John, often called the fourth Gospel, has to say about John the Baptist. Now, John the Evangelist, the author of the fourth Gospel, doesn't simply repeat what Mark has to say. Just as John the Evangelist and Mark the Evangelist have different perspectives on Jesus, just as they have different aspects of Jesus's identity and ministry which they wish to emphasise, so too they have a different perspective on Jesus's forerunner, John the Baptist. The fourth gospel has a very distinctive take on who John the Baptist is, and this comes out very strongly in this passage. So let's first get a sense of where we are. We're in the first chapter of John's gospel, the fourth gospel. Our passage begins just after the very well-known first five verses of John chapter 1, known as the prologue of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. 
So John begins his gospel with the creation of all things, with the beginning of time and with the eternal nature of God himself as the creator of all that is. But then he focuses in on a particular point in human history. We're in Bethany on the far side of the Jordan and a man called John is baptising. And so this person, John, is the bridge between the fourth gospel's very poetic prologue with its focus on eternity and creation and the rest of chapter one, which grounds the action in a specific point in human history. John is the bridge. And he's in Bethany. Where is Bethany? Well, Bethany is a town near Jerusalem. We know that Jewish authorities from Jerusalem were able to travel there to ask John their questions. Nowadays, Bethany is known by the Arabic name Al-Azariah, meaning place of Lazarus, because it is the town in which Jesus' friends, Mary, Martha and Lazarus, lived. It's uncertain what Bethany means in the original Aramaic or Hebrew. Bethany itself is a Greek translation of an Aramaic or Hebrew word. It possibly means house of figs or house of affliction, but we're not sure. Jesus stays in Bethany many times during his public ministry. He has dinner there with Simon the leper when a woman anoints his feet with costly ointment. He passes through Bethany on his way to Jerusalem for his triumphal entry, which marks the beginning of his passion. He then goes back and lodges in Bethany after he has entered Jerusalem. We read that Bethany is on the far side of the Jordan, and the Jordan is the river in which John the Baptist baptises. In the Synoptic Gospels, it is where John baptises Jesus himself, though the fourth gospel does not record this incident from the life of Jesus, his baptism by John in the River Jordan. In fact, the fourth gospel does not actually refer to John in any of the conventional ways that the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, do. So John the Evangelist does not describe John as John the Baptist, nor does he describe him as the forerunner. As we see, John is described in the fourth gospel as the witness. And this is the part of John's identity which the fourth gospel wishes to emphasise. And we discover more about John's identity through the questioning of the priests and Levites sent by the Pharisees from Jerusalem to interrogate him. Now, in the fourth gospel, the phrase the Jews, though it can sound a bit derogatory in its English translation, often simply refers to what we might call the religious institution of Judaism. So the fourth gospel says the Jews, the way we might say the bishops or the Vatican. They are asking John who he is. Specifically, they want to know if he is Elijah or the prophet. By Elijah, they mean the prophet Elijah of the northern kingdom of Israel, who doesn't have his own book of prophecy in the Old Testament, but instead is a prominent figure in the historical books of the Old Testament, particularly 1 and 2 Kings. The reason the Jewish authorities ask specifically if John is Elijah is because God had promised through the prophet Malachi that the coming of divine judgment at the end of time would be heralded by the return of the prophet Elijah. So we read in Malachi chapter 4 verse 5, Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Now the promise of a final prophet before the beginning of the messianic age is also made in Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 15 where Moses says to the people of Israel the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people 
you shall heed such a prophet. It is this prophecy that the Jewish authorities are referring to when they ask John if he is the prophet. But John does not compare himself to the prophet Elijah promised by Malachi or to the prophet like Moses promised in Deuteronomy. Instead, he says that he is a voice that cries in the wilderness, make a straight way for the Lord. And here, as he says, he is quoting the prophet Isaiah, chapter 40. Now, the Gospel of Luke also links this passage from Isaiah 40 to the ministry of John the Baptist, though in Luke, John the Baptist does not directly quote Isaiah. So Luke says in chapter 3, verses 3 to 4, He went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of the prophet Isaiah, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. But Luke gives us a bit more of this passage from Isaiah, in a way that makes it clear what the role of the voice in the wilderness is we go on to read that the voice in the wilderness is there to prepare the way of the Lord so that the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways made smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So Isaiah is prophesying the salvation of all humanity and this is the prophecy that the New Testament writers link to the ministry of John the Baptist. So that's our literal sense. We are in Bethany with John the Baptist and the Jewish authorities at the very beginning of the fourth gospel, the gospel of John the Evangelist. We have seen that the Jewish authorities are trying to locate John the Baptist in salvation history by comparing him to different figures promised in the Old Testament and asking him who he is. Now we'll look at our spiritual senses. Where is God? Where is the human person? Where is the church in this passage? we'll see that this passage reveals God to be light, truth, and the source of all being, who acts in human history through the ministry of chosen witnesses. We'll see that it reveals the human person to be named, chosen, and sent, just like John the Baptist. And this naming and sending takes place through the ministry of the church, where the light of God becomes part of us through the illumination of baptism. So where can we find God in this passage? Well, God acts at the very beginning. He is the one who sends John. We read, a man came sent by God. And this sets the tone for the whole of this passage. What we know of God from this passage is revealed through God's action in and through John. We know God first and foremost as the one who acts in human history. And in this passage in particular, we know him first and foremost as the one who sends. Why did God send John? We read that John has come as a witness to the light. And we've come across the theme of light already in John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Straight after this verse comes the announcement that John has come as a witness to the light. So from the very beginning of John's Gospel, we can trace a link from the concept of light back to the nature of God himself. 
This light that John is witnessing to is a light that shines in the darkness, a light that reveals life in its fullness, the origin and perfection of life itself. And this life in its fullness has come into being through the action of the word of God, the word that is with God in the beginning, the word that is God. So by witnessing to the light, John is witnessing to God. So John is here to tell us something about God. What's interesting then is that most of what we learn of John in this passage is in the negative. We learn what John was not. We read that John was not the light. When the Jewish authorities ask him, who are you? He says, I am not the Christ. He says, I am not, when they ask him if he is Elijah. When they ask him if he is the prophet, he says no. So John is defining himself by what he is not. Before John can proclaim the greatness of God, the immensity of God's saving plan, John first has to make clear his own smallness, his own relative insignificance in the divine plan of salvation. John defines himself by what he is not, so that there can be no confusion between John and the divine light to whom he is witnessing. But there's also a kind of poetic symmetry in what John is saying. John says, I am not. But as we read on in the fourth gospel, as Jesus enters his public ministry, we will repeatedly hear Jesus saying, I am. In John 10, 9, he says, I am the door. In John 10, 11, he says, I am the good shepherd. In John 15, 5, he says, I am the vine. This phrase, I am, that Jesus uses is an echo of the divine name revealed to Moses in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses encounters God at the burning bush and asks, If I come to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Notice that Moses is also sent by God, the God who is. God is defined by the fact he is total and perfect being, the origin and perfection of all existence, of life. Remember, this is the light that John is giving witness to, the light that is the life of all peoples. We as creatures exist because God has created us. We have life because God has given us a small, limited and imperfect share in his boundless and perfect life. And so when John witnesses to the light of God, the God who is life, he reveals God to us as the one who is, by defining himself as the one who is not. Is John the first witness that God has ever sent? It seems not. And so we can find out more about John's witnessing and the God that that witnessing reveals by looking elsewhere in the scriptures at other biblical witnesses. The word for witness in the original Greek is martyreo, meaning to witness. And when we look at the Greek version of the Old Testament, known as the Septuagint, we see that this verb martyreo is used several times before the coming of Christ in various different ways. For instance, it can be used in a legal context within the Jewish law. In Deuteronomy 19.15, we read, A single witness shall not suffice to convict a person of any crime or wrongdoing in connection with any offence that may be committed. 
and in Deuteronomy 17.6, we read, On the evidence of two or three witnesses, the death sentence shall be executed. A person must not be put to death on the evidence of only one witness. Having witnesses to establish the truth of a situation, the facts, is important in the Jewish law. Now, this legal sense of martyreo also appears with a theological twist in the prophet Isaiah. There, God speaks of his revelation within human history as a kind of trial to prove who is the true God, and he speaks of Israel as the witnesses whom he has chosen. We read, Let all the nations gather together, and let the peoples assemble. Who among them declared this, and foretold to us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to justify them, and let them hear and say, It is true. You are my witnesses, says the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no saviour. Later in Isaiah 55, verses 3 to 4, God singles out King David as his witness. We read, I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. See, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. This idea of martyreo, to witness, links the nature of God with truth. God has witnesses because he is truth. The purpose of witnessing is to reveal the truth. So there is a truth to be revealed to the world by the witnesses of God. And that truth is that God alone is the true God, the Lord, and that he is the saviour of humanity. Now we have John as a witness to that same truth, the truth of the one saviour God. Now this is important because the theme of truth is really central to the fourth gospel. Later on in chapter one, John the Evangelist will tell us that the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. Then in John chapter 14, Jesus tells his disciples, I am the way, the truth and the life. The God who is truth and who acts in human history chooses a human witness to give testimony to that truth. The God who is being itself, the fullness of life, requires a human witness who can testify to what he himself is not in order to emphasise the fullness of the divine life, of what God is. Through his witness, John reveals the God who sent him, a God who is light, life and truth, made flesh in the person of the word, the person of Jesus Christ. And so from this passage, we see that God is light, truth and the source of all being, who acts in human history through the ministry of chosen witnesses. So John the Baptist clearly has a very distinctive role within salvation history. He is sent by God as a witness to the light. But that doesn't mean that John has nothing to tell the rest of us about what it means to be human. In this passage, John is named, chosen and sent by God. And this naming, choosing and sending is something that takes place in all our lives too. Earlier, we looked briefly at the book of Exodus, where God names himself to Moses as I am who I am. His identity as the source and perfection of all life 
gives him his name. But earlier in Exodus chapter 3 verse 6, he says to Moses that he is also the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In human history, God is named and made known by the names of those who follow him, who trust in him, and who serve him, such as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, often these people have been given their name, or given a new name, by God as part of his choosing and sending of them. Abraham was originally Abram. We read in Genesis chapter 17, verse 5, that when God makes a covenant with Abram, he says, No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. Then Jacob is told in Genesis 32:28, after he has wrestled with the angel, You shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans, and have prevailed. And of course, God also names his witness John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 1 verse 13, God sends an angel to John's father, the priest Zechariah, and the angel tells Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. John himself receives a name from God. So the first step in being called and chosen by God is being named by God, being known by God so personally and so deeply that he is the author of our name, which stands, if you like, for our identity. Now what's fascinating is that in the scriptures, God doesn't simply know the name of a select few. He knows the name of each one of his chosen people, both collectively and individually. In Isaiah 43.1, we read God say to Israel, I have called you by name, you are mine. He says this to the whole of the people of Israel. So the whole of God's chosen people, like John, are named by God and known to God. But surely not all of us are witnesses to the light in the way that John is. Well, this same word witness, applied to this one individual John, is also applied to the whole of Christ's church by Christ himself at his ascension. In Acts chapter 1 verse 8, Jesus tells his disciples, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So the mission of witness is, by the power of the Holy Spirit, given to each individual Christian through and in the ministry of the church. All of us, like John, are named and chosen as beloved witnesses to his light. By looking to John the Baptist, and particularly looking to how the fourth gospel portrays John as a witness to the light, we can understand our own individual, personal calling to be witnesses to the God who knows us, names us, calls us, and chooses us. But while God does indeed speak to each of us personally as individuals, he does not just speak to us as individuals. He also calls us as a community, the community of the church. We read in the Catechism, in paragraph 759, that the Eternal Father created the whole universe and chose to raise up men to share in his own divine life to which he calls all men in his son. The father determines to call together in a holy church those who should believe 
in Christ. So we are named by God, chosen and called by him, and sent forth as his witnesses through the church. It is in and through the church, in our lives as baptised Christians, that we receive our identity as witnesses, like John, called, chosen and sent by God. Now, how do we become members of the church? It's through baptism. Now, the fourth gospel does not have much to say about the baptism of John, the baptism of the forgiveness of sins, and how that baptism points towards and leads us to the sacrament of baptism, which brings us into the body of Christ. But the fourth gospel's emphasis on light might help us to understand the sacrament of baptism in a slightly different way. One of the names for baptism in the early church, as the Catechism points out, was enlightenment or illumination. We read in the Catechism, Baptism is called enlightenment because in it one receives the true light that enlightens every man. That's paragraph 1216 of the Catechism. And the phrase, the true light that enlightens every man, is in fact from the fourth gospel, the Gospel of John, Chapter 1, verse 9. So baptism illuminates us by filling our lives with the divine life, the life that is the light of all men, as the fourth gospel tells us. It is our share in that life of God, which is the light of all men. By sharing in the light through baptism, we belong to that light and become witnesses of it, witnesses to its truth. St. Paul tells us, in the first letter to the Thessalonians, chapter 5, that we are children of the light. We have been enlightened by the sacrament of enlightenment, baptism. And Paul also tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 to 9, that once you were in darkness, but now in the Lord you are light. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. By living in the grace of our baptism, the sacrament of enlightenment and illumination, we live as children of the divine light. And so our Christian lives become a witness to that light, just as John's life was. John's call to be a witness to the light is a calling we all share, a personal calling to witness to the God who is truth. And it is through the church which brings us the illuminating enlightening grace of baptism, that we receive this call and are empowered to live it out. Like John, we must point towards the light, because it is by looking to us that the world will see the light of Christ. So that's our gospel for this third Sunday of Advent. The literal sense of this passage shows us that we are in Bethany with John the Baptist and the Jewish authorities at the very beginning of John's gospel. We've seen that the Jewish authorities are trying to locate John the Baptist in salvation history and compare him to different figures promised in the Old Testament. The spiritual senses of this passage reveal God to be light, truth and the source of all being, a God who acts in human history through the ministry of his chosen witnesses. We've seen that the human person is named, chosen and sent just like John the Baptist to be a witness. And this naming, choosing and sending takes place through the ministry of the church, where the light of God comes into our lives, becomes part of our lives through the illumination of baptism, 
through which we become children of the light.